In recent weeks, we paused in our uh, study of Matthew's Gospel to talk about church membership so that we could address some of these things. So we could talk about, uh, is church membership biblical? Should every Christian join a local church? What should a church expect from its members? And then today, uh, what should you, members, expect from the church? And so, to look at this from the Scripture, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to look at Paul's letter to the churches at Ephesus and hopefully as we do that get a better understanding of what it is we should expect from the church. As you're turning there, I just want to mention as we have in the last few weeks that uh, on your pews along with the fellowship pad there's some yellow cards. Uh, We're asking everybody to fill one of these out if you haven't already. Uh, Even if you're just a visitor or a tender, we want to get uh, more accurate information on folks as we seek to better communicate. And then also if you are Uh, a visitor or attender, and you're interested in knowing more about joining the church, you can indicate that on your card. And if you are a member of the church, we'd like you to turn on the back there and see our church covenant. This is something that we affirmed as a church back in 2008, but we're asking uh, everyone who's a member of our church to read through this, to check it, to sign it. Uh, And if you have any questions about it, feel free to talk to me or any of our pastors here at Bloomfield Baptist, uh, as we want to make sure that we're working together towards this biblical picture of what the church is to be and what membership is to be. So we're going to look again at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 16. And so I'll read this and then uh, pray for our time in God's Word this Lord's Day. This is what the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the churches at Ephesus. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer may be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." But rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray for our time in God's word this Lord's day. Sovereign God, we have in front of us a picture of what the church is called to be, and we have in front of us uh, the church this morning and and what 
we look like and oftentimes what we look like and what we're called to may not measure up completely. Uh, Lord, we fall short so often. Uh, Lord, so often we, in our efforts to represent these things, we, we try in our own efforts and we fail. And Lord, for some of us, we, we just don't understand what the church is really supposed to look like anyways. And pray, Lord, you would help us to look through these things to have a better understanding of your word and, Lord, to what the calling placed on our life as believers is. Lord, I pray for any this morning who has yet to respond to the call of the gospel. Lord, that your word would penetrate their heart, that your spirit would call them to repentance, that they too might experience the newness of life that is found only in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Several years ago, uh, in an attempt to help our children better understand uh, world geography, uh, we got a jigsaw puzzle. It was about 600 pieces, and it was a jigsaw puzzle of a, a map of the world. And we sat down, and the kids started to work on that. And about two and a half minutes later, Sandy and I did it. Uh, they got a little bored with it, but we started working through it and, and doing this jigsaw puzzle, and it finally came together. You know, it's a little challenge to get... Uh, the oceans all matched up, all these blue pieces. But, but we put this, this puzzle together. Perhaps some of you enjoy that as a pastime. You enjoy putting puzzles together. After doing this puzzle, it kind of piqued my interest. This was 600 pieces, and it took us some amount of time. I wondered how large these puzzles get. And so did a little research and found that uh, the largest jigsaw puzzle that you can purchase today is 32,000 pieces. Uh, when it's put together, it's 11 foot by 7 feet. Uh, it retails for $300, but if you act now on Amazon, you can get it for $200. So if uh, some of y'all were looking for a fall break pastime, perhaps a 2013 pastime, uh, you can get a 32,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. Uh, you, you may wonder, like I do, uh, how do you put together a 32,000-piece jigsaw puzzle? Uh, well, you do it the same way you put together a 600-piece jigsaw puzzle. Uh, you, y'all are talking to me. This is good. We're interacting today. Uh, you, you start with a picture, and you look at that picture, and then you put it together like the picture shows. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's 100 pieces or it's 32,000 pieces. Uh, you start by looking at the picture. Then you look at the pieces. Then you get the pieces to match the picture. Well, that is a task with a jigsaw puzzle. And that is a tax that we're called to in the church as well. You see, when you look at the church, oftentimes what you see are, are a bunch of pieces. Uh, sometimes maybe not fitting together so well. And yet we can also look and see a picture, a picture of what the church should look like, of when all these pieces are put together, what they should represent. And that's what we see when we come to Ephesians chapter 4. We see the picture of the church. And yet, when you look at many of our churches today, what you see are a bunch of pieces, maybe not quite fitting as they should. Now, the challenge to us is to move from there to what this picture represents. It serves as an encouragement to us as well. As we've been talking about church membership, uh, there's been a lot of challenges we've talked about, about what God calls us to be as church members. There, there's a picture there. Maybe you feel like, I'm not quite there. I don't quite represent that. The good news of the gospel is, through the gospel, that's the direction that we're called to move. And so, this morning, I, I don't want to look at 
what the church looks exactly like right here in front of you. I want to look at what does the scripture call the church to look like, and then how can we move in that direction? What, what should we expect, according to the scripture, the church to be? And we see a picture of that here in Ephesians chapter 4. And the first thing we see is this. And put this in your notes, that we see a picture here of a, of a shared vision for unity. A shared vision for unity. It starts off in Paul's letter, he says, I therefore, there, there's a transition here in chapter 4. Uh, you can learn more about what's taking place here, who Paul's writing to. Actually, if you, you look back at Acts chapter 19, in Acts chapter 19, 18, 19, 20, you see Paul there in his missionary journeys. Uh, you see him there with the Ephesian believers. You see him discipling them. You see him, for example, find a group of folks who are, who are disciples, but they don't quite fully understand the gospel yet, and he's able to share with them what it means to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and be filled with the Spirit. Uh, you see quite a dramatic thing taking place there in Ephesus as the gospel is spreading and people are converting and coming to repentance and faith. It affects the local economy. Uh, there are people there in Ephesus whose entire livelihood is built on making false idols to sell people to worship. And so as people are converting, they no longer want these false idols. So the people who make these false idols are quite upset with Paul. And what you see there in uh, the book of Acts is that a riot actually ensues from that. Uh, you see all kinds of things taking place there. What, what you see is the, the thumbprint of the Lord. You see people coming to faith in Christ. You see a church being established. And then from there, you see, for example, what we have in front of us. Paul writing back to that church to say, okay, here's some things you need. Here's some instruction. Uh, Ephesians is six chapters. Very simply, the first three chapters is doctrine. It's, it's Paul saying, here's what we are to, to live in Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is how the gospel makes us new in Christ. It, it, it's doctrine. And then the second three chapters, verse, uh, chapters 4 through 6, is essentially the Christian duty. It's, like, it's how do we apply this doctrine to our lives? How do we now live in light of the gospel? And so it's fitting for us to look then at what should the church look like. And so Paul says, therefore, he makes this transition. And he tells us how we need to walk. Now, walk is a term that you see throughout the New Testament. Uh, but you'll find it nowhere more often than in the book of Ephesians, and specifically these last few chapters. It's a word that implies a, your calling in life. Uh, this is what your life is to represent. This is what it's to look like. And notice what Paul says as believers our life is to look like. As he goes through these various attributes, ultimately he gets to verse 3 and says, we're, we're to maintain unity. Uh, our walk as believers, as the church... Our expectation ultimately should be that the church is a place that has unity. Biblical, gospel-driven, Christ-centered unity. And yet the question is this. Is that what the church is known for today in our culture? Is that what churches are known for? Do they know us by our unity? Or do they know us by our divisiveness? And I think oftentimes we're known by our divisiveness. Uh, we're known by the things we don't agree on more than the things we do agree on. And, and you can find some rather extreme cases. I remember a number of years ago in seminary, one that was rather extreme. Uh, there was a young man there that was pastoring a church. And uh, we were talking about uh, divisiveness in the church. And he said, well, I, I've got a pretty divisive situation that I walked into. He said that before he had come to pastor this church, Things had gotten pretty rough. Uh, specifically, 
between the former pastor and a couple of the deacons. Uh, they had been divided over an issue, and essentially the deacons had said, you don't need to serve here anymore, and the pastor refused to leave. And so one of the deacons told the pastor, well, if you show up in church anymore, you're going to be sorry you did. And so, uh, as he told the story, he said that Sunday evening, the pastor got up to preach, uh, the lights went out, and everybody heard him get hit in the head with a bat. And then the lights came back on. And if you see me up here in a football helmet, you know things have gotten pretty rough in our deacons' meetings, but... Uh, I remember him sharing that story thinking, you, you are making this up. Uh, I, that's a pretty extreme case, and yet there's some situations I've seen that aren't far from it. The, the church is a place where uh, we, uh, even as believers, we, we come in with so many issues, and so often we're more concerned about building, building ourselves up than building the church up. That, that we don't look at unity at all, and, and we become divided. And so whether it's churches splitting over that or our pastor's heads getting split over that, it's divisiveness. And yet the biblical call, that the pieces put together in front of us this morning, what are they? Paul calls us to unity. And he pretty much gives us a roadmap of how we get there. He talks about things that are to build unity in the church. He, he says we've been called, for example, to humility. Now think of what it means to, to humble ourselves before one another, of how humility builds towards unity, and yet pride corrupts unity. Think about what we see in this scripture. You go to Genesis, and what's happening there? What, what are Adam and Eve tempted with? In part, there's the temptation presented of, listen, uh, you deserve more than what God's giving you. There's something else out here, and you deserve it. You can have it if you eat of this tree God knows if you eat of that tree you're going to have something more than you have and, and so we see a root there of pride of arrogance of this thought that I deserve more and I, I should get that and we see how pride corrupts the unity there that existed between the father and Adam and Eve in the garden and you see that same pride will corrupt unity in the church you'll see it corrupt unity in our families and yet what does Christ call us to he calls us to humility and he doesn't call us to humility by giving us a list of moral duties, of saying, well, just be more humble and just be more this and just be more this. No, Christ himself models for us what? Humility. Greater than we can fathom. Scripture tells us, Philippians 2.8, that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And so it is only in Christ, through Christ, that we can have this humility with one another that we're called to in an effort to move towards unity. He tells us as well, we need to have gentleness. You think again of how a harsh spirit, a coarse spirit can, can, can divide, can, can keep us away from unity. And yet here we're called to a spirit of gentleness. And the reality is we're, we're not born gentle people. We're born kind of harsh people. We're not real gentle with our words. Uh, some of us, we, we learn to be gentle over time. Some of us still need to learn to be gentle. Uh, some of us I can think about with my own children, you know, walk in the room, uh, wearing a new shirt. How are y'all doing? We're doing good. That shirt makes you look fat, Dad. Okay, thank you. General answer there. No, they're just say it. They're just coarse. They're just harsh. Some of you haven't outgrown that. I don't ask you what my shirt looks like today. Uh, we're, we're harsh. And yet, what is it that the Spirit gives us? Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit among other things is what? Gentleness. 
One of the marks of our church should be that as the Spirit of Christ works in us and through us, that we are then gentle with one another. Scripture goes on to tell us that we need to be patient. We need to be patient. Think again of how a lack of patience can divide us and how we need to be patient with one another. And I especially think about how we need to be patient with others in their walk with the Lord. Oftentimes we think we've arrived and, and everybody else needs to hurry up and get to where we're at. So we, we interact with a weaker brother or sister and we think, well, you need to stop that and you need to start this. And we say it in a very harsh way and we don't give much patience. And yet, think of this. Think of how patient God has been with you. Think of how patient God was with you in, in, in calling you towards the gospel. Think of how in our sin we are deserving of the wrath of God in a moment. And yet in God's patience with us, He holds back His wrath. Christ demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ dies on the cross for us. Think of the patience that's necessary for the gospel. And when you think of what patience God has shown you, then we in turn are to show others that same kind of patience again. Not of your own doing, but because of what God has done for you. In Christ, through Christ, we're to give patience to one another. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says that we are to, to be bearing with one another in love. Uh, that word bearing in the Greek, it, it means we're to put up with one another. Praise Jesus. Uh, that, that's a biblical call. We have this picture somehow that, that the church is supposed to be all these like-minded people who, oh, we just smile and we sing and we get along and uh, I'm just going to let you in on something. That's not what it usually looks like. We're different people. We have different thoughts. We're in different parts along this process of sanctification, of growing in our faith. We're exposed to the worst in one another. And what does Christ tell us? He tells us as we show patience, as we love one another, we're also called to put up with one another in a Christ-exalting way. To, to endure, to forbear. Uh, there may be someone who they just kind of rub you the wrong way. In the love of Christ, you, you put up with them. Not, not in a grumbling, complaining, divisive way, but in a way where, again, you think about this. Think about how God's put up with you. And we put up with others. As we do these things, they, they move us towards unity. And ultimately, Paul helps us understand what it is we're to be united in. Uh, we're, we're not just to experience unity for, for some, uh, some way of saying, hey, look at how well we, we get along and, and aren't we great. No, we experience unity based in something for the sake of something. And he goes on to tell us about that in verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body. Here he speaks of the church, the, the body of Christ, the, the bride of Christ. We are one. We experience oneness there. And what a beautiful thing that is. It's so encouraging for me, not just when I'm here, but when I travel, if I go on a mission trip, if I go to places uh, on other sides of the world to see the truth of this because you will find the remnant, you'll find the brethren, you'll find people who are Christians in other parts of the world who I have nothing else in common with and yet we are bound by our love for Christ. We're a part of the universal church of Jesus Christ and there's unity there. He says we're to be united in that. He says we're to be united by, by one spirit. 
Christ has given us a great gift, the, the Holy Spirit, who as a believer, He indwells us and He fills us. And we see here in part what He does is He leads us towards unity. And so when you're, you're in the midst of division with another believer, Christians, when you're in division with, with your believing spouse, you need to pray that God's Spirit would bring unity there. You need to pray that God's Spirit would bring unity in the church. And yet oftentimes I think we just neglect this. Oftentimes I find that when I'm in counseling with two people, maybe it's marriage counseling, maybe it's some other situation where there's division, uh, sometimes I'll ask the question, have, have you prayed for God's Spirit to bring unity here? And, and they just look at me like, what are you talking about? And I think about that, and I'm the same way. Uh, when I go home, there's not always perfect unity, even though I'm always right. And... Uh, and so in those conversations, usually I'm trying to make sure the other person understands how right I am and how wrong they are. Anybody else do this? Yes, we, we are all wrong. That, that's not what the Spirit tells us. The Spirit says, pray towards unity, focus towards unity, because in Christ, the gospel brings us unity. What does the gospel show us? God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he made sure we knew how bad we were. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our sin. There was no need to argue over who was right and who was wrong. He was right, we were wrong in our sin. Yet Christ, who was perfect right, righteousness, died on the cross in our place. That we might experience this, the righteousness of God. That we might experience the burden of sin gone. That we might be free in Christ. And then as those people, we come together and we experience unity through Christ, in Christ, as the church, through the Holy Spirit. We, we share hope, the Scripture tells us. One hope that belongs to our call. We, we are people who should be hopeful. We, we, we don't rest our ultimate hope in an election. We don't rest our ultimate hope in a, in a job promotion or in a better economy. All these things will ultimately fail us. We rest our hope in Christ who has indeed risen and will return and we long for that returning. We hope in that returning and that binds us together in unity. We see the Scripture goes on to say we, we have one Lord Notice it doesn't say just we have one Savior, we have one Christ. It says specifically we have one Lord. This is who Jesus is to the believer. He's not just your, your friend. He's not just your Savior. He, he's your Lord, the Scripture tells us. Romans chapter 10, the confession we share. If we will confess indeed that Christ is Lord. And so as we share the Gospel with people, parents, as you share the Gospel with your kids... We're not supposed to paint, we shouldn't paint this picture that, well, Christ just wants to be your buddy. Christ wants to be their king, and he wants to be sovereign over them. And that's the same he desires for you and I, our Lord. But you can't have two lords. And that's why Christ says you can't serve, for example, God and money. One's going to master over you. And we were made to be mastered. We were made to have a king. And we make very poor kings ourselves. And the scripture says we're to have but one king, one Lord, who is Christ. 
We're united by our faith in Him. We're united by our baptism. That's, we're baptized. We share that confession of telling the world this is who we are in Christ. New. The old Richard dead, the new Richard raised. That's a confession that we share. And all this falls under the umbrella of verse 6. One God, Father of all, who is sovereign. God is sovereign over all. And we are to be united under Him. And yet, what we see here, and all this picture of unity as we look around us, in the midst of unity, we have great diversity. And there, there's, there's biblical diversity God's given us. There's ways He's gifted us and blessed us. And that's the second thing I placed in your notes, is that we're to strive towards this vision of unity among a diversity of shepherds and saints, of, among a diversity of people, among a diversity of roles God's called us to in the church. Verse 7 talks about how Christ has, has given to each of us according to his measure. He's, he's gifted us. And then verse 8, Paul then uh, quotes Psalm 68. When he ascended on high and led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. Uh, this is a psalm speaking of God as a conquering sovereign God. Uh, in Old Testament times, when a king would conquer a land, he would then come back into his people and to his followers, perhaps his soldiers, perhaps the people of his land. He would then divide up uh, the things that he had gotten from the people he had conquered. He'd divide up those spoils. He would give them out as gifts. And, and this psalm, in essence, is messianic. It's pointing towards Christ. And that's why Paul kind of does some explanation here when he ascended on high he is speaking specifically here of the messiah of christ and paul explains that by saying well in saying he ascended it means that he had descended to the earth and now he has ascended far above all things that he might fill all things the picture here is that christ has not just gone in one a battle Christ has gone and He has won the battle. And He has defeated Satan, sin. He has crushed the head of the serpent. He reigns victorious. And now He is gifting those of us who are in the church, who are His followers. He's giving us gifts. He's giving us spiritual gifts. And He's calling us to use those gifts for the edification of the body. He doesn't say the church exists to, to cater to your gifts, he says, you and your gifts exist to cater to the church. Uh, the church, you should not expect it to be a place that will customize a program around every little thing that, that you feel gifted in doing. No, the church is fairly simple. We're called to make disciples of the nations, to take the gospel to the world, to build up the body of Christ, to do these things as the passage tells us today, with patience, gentleness, bearing with one another, all these things. And so God has gifted every one of us in different ways to make that happen. Not to make a little customized ministry about us, but to build up the body of Christ. He is the one that we're unified in, and He is the one that, although we have a diversity of gifts, all those things are to point towards. We see the picture in the Scripture, 1 Corinthians 12, that I've mentioned the last few weeks, that, that picture of the body. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that, that every piece of that body, it all has a different function, but they are so interdependent on one another. And that's the church. I spend a fair amount of time visiting people in the hospitals, and I might go see someone who's recovering from heart surgery. And when there's a, a, an issue in your heart, it affects everything. It can literally shut down everything. And so if I go see someone who's just had a heart surgery... I do not say to them, 
well, why don't you get out of that bed? I mean, your left toe looks fine. Your right thumb seems to be functioning. Your, eye, your, your eyes are blinking. Your face is turning red. And so you must be fine. Just get on out of that bed. No, I don't say that. Why? Because it would be foolish. And because it's a misunderstanding of how the body works. If my thumb is working but my heart is not, then the whole thing's in trouble. And the picture in 1 Corinthians 12 is the same. If we in parts are not functioning as we should, it affects the whole thing. And that's why things like church membership are important. And a church covenant's important. Because it's us coming together as a body saying, listen, we're going to all focus on doing this. And through Christ, in Christ, this is what we're striving towards. And when one member is suffering, we all will suffer. And when one member rejoices, we will all rejoice. But if we don't even know where you live, how do we rejoice with you? If we don't know that you were in the grave five years ago, how do we suffer with you? This is the picture. This is what it is that God has placed in front of us. This diversity. And notice he has different roles, different functions. He says he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. There's all these roles specifically here. There's roles of of leading within the church. There are those who are called to shepherd the church, to care for the souls of those in the church, to teach God's word to those in the church. And yet, that doesn't mean that everyone else is exempt, that, that everything just falls on those who lead, because then it goes on to say, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Whose responsibility is it to build up the body? In Christ, through Christ, it's everyone's responsibility. And yet we as the church have kind of fallen into this worldly principle of 80-20. Well, as long as, you know, we've got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. 80-20 does not accomplish and fulfill the Great Commission. We are, every one of us, called to use the gifts God's given us to live in such a way, give in such a way, go in such a way, serve in such a way that we reach the world with the gospel. It requires all of us, not just some of us. It requires us to do this in unity and not in a divisive spirit. And ultimately, as we do it, the passage concludes by pointing to this, that we need to be committed then to doctrinal purity and spiritual growth. Paul, as he gives this picture, he goes on in verses 13 through 16 to say that that we're moving towards something here. Verse 13, to mature manhood. Verse 14, so that we're no longer children. He says, church, we need to grow up. Our kids, perhaps your kids, your grandkids, they talk about growing up. You know, well, yeah, when I grow up, no more green stuff for dinner, mom and dad. It's all donuts. That's what we're going to have when I grow up. Dad, you're driving too slow. When I grow up, I'm going to go 2,000 miles an hour. And all these things, they, they, they want to grow up. It's usually sinful inclinations they're talking of, but, but they want to grow up. They, they want to get bigger. They want to mature. And yet I fear in the church that we don't want to. That we're content being infants. Well, I don't... You know, the Bible's hard for me to read. I don't quite get it, you know, and I just like it better when somebody tells me what it says. Well, I, you know, I just don't understand these things, and yet what does the Scripture call us to? It calls us more than any, ever, any other thing in our life to focus on learning it, 
and growing up in it. Paul gives that example in 1 Corinthians 3. I couldn't treat you like spiritual man. I treat you as natural man. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, because you weren't yet ready for it. He says, you're just infants. And I fear that we in the church were just so content just being infants and being spoon-fed, and yet the picture we have here is no, as we strive towards unity, as we celebrate the diversity of giftedness that Christ has given us, we're to move on, we're to grow up. And specifically, we need to grow up in our understanding of doctrine and of God's Word. Because, friends, it is very easy for us to be tossed there and there, to and fro, by every wind, by every inclination. It is very easy for us to see whether it's the, the, the new uh, business card piece of paper that's got a few words on it that, that alludes to the possibility that Jesus had a bride even though we have little evidence to suggest that it is real. Even though we have over 5,000 pieces much bigger than that of fragments of the New Testament that give us the document in front of us and yet that's what we become fascinated with. It's very easy for us to walk in the Christian bookstore and pick up the latest fictional novel, or maybe not fictional novel, but something that has deceptive doctrine and just eat it up and spend little to no time in God's Word. And if that's your practice, you're going to get seasick, the Scripture says. You're going to go up and down and to and fro. The Scripture says we're to grow up in our knowledge of Christ. We're to grow up in our discipleship and teaching one another, learn from one another, so that ultimately we might experience this unity. Verse 15, so that we can speak the truth in love to one another. That, that's a mark of maturity. Some of you are very good at speaking the truth, but you're not very good at love. Some of you are great at love and compassion and grace, but you are terrible at speaking the truth. And either of those will lead to a train wreck. We're called to speak the truth in the love of Christ and to do these things together, to experience that unity, to build one another up, to grow in our faith to this point, where ultimately we come back to this picture of the body. And I love verse 16 because it says, this body that we're a part of is joined and held together every joint in Christ Jesus. See, Christ is who holds this together. I don't. You don't. Christ does. You think about what a fascinating thing the body is and how all of it functions together, it works together. The scripture here says that the way the church does that, the way the church takes all these different people and different backgrounds and different issues and brings them in Christ and brings them together and they work together is that every single joint and bone and marrow and muscle and every little thing, every nerve ending, it's held together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what holds us together. It's what calls us together. It's what sends us to the world together. And so, friends, when we talk about things like church membership, this is not just an effort to, to clean up some books. This is a desire that we might all understand the gospel and respond to it. Because it's it. It's our only hope. And if your hope is in anything else this morning, I beg with you and plead with you, Burn the ships, abandon it all, and embrace the gospel of Christ. And whatever it is you're bringing in that you think, well, God can never forgive this, or I can't let go of this, the cross is sufficient. And on that cross, Christ endured it all that we might live in Him. And we might look like a messy bunch of pieces on a table, 
but he is building us towards a picture that is far more glorious than 32,000 pieces in a puzzle. It is the bride. It is glorious. And it will reign forever. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that's what we invite you this Lord's Day to be a part of. If you would, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this picture of the church. And Father, now I pray that you would call us all to it. Perhaps there are some here, Lord, who need to respond through repentance and faith and responding to the gospel and acknowledging that they cannot save themselves, but it is only through Christ that they can know you and be saved and that burden be relieved. Father, call them to faith in Christ today. Father, for those who have, perhaps you're calling some to to come and join this church. It's been so encouraging in recent days to talk with a number of people, Lord, that you're calling to be a part of our church family. Lord, we invite those to come forward that you're calling. And, And Lord, perhaps there's an area where some this morning, they just need to repent. Maybe as we talk about the church and these issues of unity, maybe they see divisiveness in their life, divisiveness in the church. Maybe there's a, a root of bitterness. Maybe there's an issue that they're not living the gospel out. They're not forgiving, Lord. They're not forbearing. They're not having patience. Maybe they've just kind of grown numb towards someone in the church, Lord. I pray you would call us to be united in the gospel, that we would deal with those issues. Lord, whatever it is, we pray that we would respond as you lead during this time of invitation. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.